0: Welcome to Oh God What Now, the politics podcast for the people who still call it Twitter. I'm Alexandreau. On today's show, as the Tory supporting press panics about a Labour victory, Sunak buckles under the weight of crises, foreign and domestic in the Commons. Plus, is this the right room for an argument or are we stuck in the being hit over the head course? Ian Hislop tore strips out of Jake Berry last week, but is winning an argument the same as persuading people over to your point of view? Let's Meet the panel. First up is Marie LeConte, certified newshound and author of Escape. And haven't you heard? Bonsoir Marie. Hello. Next we have Seth Tevo, is a journalist, historian and author of Behind Closed Door. Bienvenue, Seth. Hello, hello. And Matt Green is a comedian who hasn't written any books yet. All right, Governor? <laughs> I'm fine. Thanks for, thanks for that intro. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so nice to have you. <laughs> I'm, in
0: same, I'm in the same club, by the way. Yeah. Um, Marie, last week, the youngest French president, Emmanuel Macron, appointed the youngest French prime minister, mm. Gabriel Attal, who is also gay. Hurrah! Is this a statement of political intent that Macron plans to lean into the culture wars, do you think?
1: Um, I don't think it is. I mean, obviously, like, you know, in and of itself, it's a good thing that we have a gay prime minister, I think, like the first ever, at least, you know, kind of openly gay. But no, so I would say his appointment is quite interesting because if you look at the former prime ministers, like Macron's prime ministers, so Edouard Philippe, Jean, Quet- uh, Jean Castex, and Elisabeth Bourne, they were all completely unknown to the French public. Like, people did not know who they were. And they were kind of, you know, not literally civil servant, but civil servant types, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. who were kind of like across the detail, very policy-focused, et cetera, uh, and not especially massively charismatic. said is not like that. Like, he was Minister for Education. He was the most popular minister, you know, when he was Minister for Education in France. So yeah. he is very well known, uh, and he's very much a figure in kind of his own right So. I think the appointment shows that Macron is perhaps finally realising that a, you know, it cannot be entirely a one-man band, and he will need some form of legacy eventually, and someone to replace him. But also, he maybe needs someone to help him actually run France and kind of be, be more sort of <laughs> forward facing. So, so it was an interesting appointment, but not, not just uh, due to his sexuality, I would say.
0: Seth, you were on Times Radio last week talking about Gladstone's box. Yes, I'm a sad um, git. <laughs> Aside from sounding a bit like a sexual entendre, <laughs> um, it's also a genuine piece of parliamentary history. How did it come into your possession?
2: Yes. Um, it's... You
0: nicked it, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I,
2: I, I bought it from someone who bought it from someone who nicked it. No, um, it was something that belonged to a lived MP who'd passed away a few years ago. He'd bought it at auction as an MP in the 1960s from a friend of the Gladstone family. Um, and yeah, it's it's his dispatch box. It's this extraordinary piece of history. And um, why wouldn't you own Gladstone's dispatch box? Now, you're probably thinking I'm the sort of person who you know stands at home behind the kitchen table imagining that I'm uh, at the dispatch box. No, but I want you to imagine that I'm the kind of person who would do that. I
0: think you are the sort
1: of person <laughs> who would What would be that the funniest thing you could keep in that? <laughs> Also, memo
0: to production team, we pay Seth too much money. (laughs) Uh, Matt, Donald Trump told his supporters to brave Arctic temperatures and deliver him a decisive victory in Mondays, Iowa, caucuses, whatever the cost. The actual quote is, even if you vote and then pass away, it's worth it. (laughs) Which seems like not a winning strategy to kill your voters before, months before the actual election. Um... We know Trump will come first. What else should we be looking out for in the results?
3: Well, I think the fact that people are talking about the snow and the ice quite a lot, even though it is there is a lot of that, and it's it's apparently the, the worst conditions for many, many years, um, it does feel like that means the politics has become quite predictable. I don't think we'd be talking about the weather quite so much if there was any <laughs> worry about who was going to win. Um, and the problem is that people talk about um, motivation and... Voter enthusiasm, and that's one of the key things in that situation. And Trump's voters are motivated and enthusiastic. Some of them enough to take on the Capitol on January the sixth. Some of them apparently to you know queue up and potentially die whilst voting for him. The big question, obviously, is going is is about who comes second. Uh, Nikki Haley said to have the big mo at the moment, which I was disappointed yeah. to find out is nothing to do with the Simpsons. <laughs> and. um Ron DeSantis has been reduced to saying things like, I s- he, this is a quote from his last speech, uh, before the caucus, it's good to be the underdog. I'd rather have people lower expectations for us. I tend to perform better like that. Which to me just feels mm. a bit like a football manager saying to his team after a horrible defeat, it's good being at the bottom of the league. Mm-hmm. That that's the best place because now there's, uh, the they only way is see up. will coming yeah. next week, will yeah. they? <laughs> It's a real rope-a-dope strategy. As long as <laughs> they keep punching us in the face, eventually they'll get <laughs> tired of punching us and then we'll have our go. And it does feel like if DeSantis doesn't at least come in second, I think, even though he's very much saying that's not going to happen, I think it, I'll be surprised if he stays in much longer.
0: Yeah, I would never tire of punching Ron Sands <laughs> in the
3: face, I have to say.
0: <laughs> now that we have amused your bush... Let's get to the meat and potatoes of this week. Another difficult one for Sunak. Is there any other kind, both at home and abroad? As we record, he's taking questions in the Commons about the joint military action between the US and the UK against rebel Houthi targets. Um, The Rwanda bill is back in the Commons this week, and no side seems to be backing down. Meanwhile, people continue to lose their lives trying to cross the channel. All this while the Telegraph splashes on a significant poll that predicts extinction-level losses for the Tories at the general election. Seth, uh, the Prime Minister does not need Parliament's approval to take military action, but it has been the practice in recent Mm. memory. Why does the practice not match the constitutional convention as it were. When we talk about custom and practice we are
2: really talking about a very fancy way of describing making stuff up as we go along Mm -hmm. Um, and we talk about it when we describe our organic constitution, our unwritten constitution essentially it just means we have a firm rule that we never never do something beyond a certain way until that point where we realise okay we're actually going to do it exactly this way. Um, But a lot about the way that the British constitution is set up enables this. I mean the Royal Prerogative for example, one of its implications is that we don't ask our parliaments to confirm treaties, unlike most legislatures yeah, around yeah. the world. Um, we just take it as read on behalf of the royal family. So we have a constitution that's predisposed to the board saying let's not worry too much about the rules.
0: Okay. And yet, recently, the practice has been that prime ministers go to the... Yeah, really, um, really since the house of court. commons Yeah, that's right. And so is that just for political cover or... Is there, is there a genuine movement towards something, sli- a slightly different convention? As
2: it yeah, I mean, if you backtrack 22 years ago to the Iraq war when... Um, begrudgingly some debates were granted on this and a parliamentary vote was granted on this. And the government went out of its way to say, we're not setting a precedent here. Mm. This is really mm. just the courtesy to consult parliaments just by way of politeness. And then subsequently, every sort of major military action things like Syria, there have been calls to, well, of course, because this was done over Iraq, naturally it's a precedent. So it really is a matter of making this up.
0: Mm. Is there a way, do you think, to bridge the gap between... The need for secrecy Mm. when you go into military action and the need for democratic accountability, because that that really is what we're talking about here, right? You can't really telegraph to your opponents that you're about to strike somewhere, especially if you're in a joint action with someone else. You can't just recall parliament and chat about it for a couple of days and then expect the houthi rebels to still be at the same <laughs> positions that they were 2 days ago right so yeah. that that's the that's the basic practical mm-hmm. problem the the americans have the war powers act Is that an elegant solution to this? Yes. Should we be looking for something like it, as it
2: were? The War Powers Act is actually a really good model because it came out of that sort of parliamentary tradition, actually. It's something that came out of Congress in 1973. It's because Lyndon Johnson took America into Vietnam without ever asking for Congress's approval. When we talk about the Falklands War, when we talk about the Gulf War, you know, these are military conflicts, all these sorts of things. Um, Now, the way that Congress struck that balance was to say, in the case of the Vietnam War, uh, we're going to let the president basically deploy any troops anywhere in the world. Mm. But at 60 days notice. And after 60 days, there needs to be a confirmation vote. You can't exceed your powers. You can't just deploy troops around the world and sneak us into a war by the back door in that way. And so something like that balances the accountability quite well. It's really interesting if you hear people like um, Richard Nixon in retirement talk about how that was one of his biggest constraints in foreign policy as far Mm. as he was Mm. concerned. But actually, most presidents since then have just taken it into their stride and said, yeah, you know, I mean, famously,
0: Obama was stopped from. Yeah. Taking action. Yes, so the Catholic mod- model, ask for forgiveness rather than <laughs> permission. <laughs> Murray, um, the Rwanda Bill is also back in the Commons this week, uh, Wednesday, I think it's coming mm. back, and Sunak has not made any compromises to the rebels of any side. Uh, some of the amendments from the right of the Tory party have up to 60 rebel MPs backing them.
1: Mm.
0: On paper, that should be a defeat for the government, but mm. it is unlikely why.
1: It's well, I think you have to look back at what happened uh, with the second reading of the bill in December because there was so much smoke, you know, and so many MPs saying, I hate this and I'm going to vote against it or abstain, et cetera, et cetera, Um And actually, in the end, not a single Tory MP actually voted against the bill and only about three dozen of them abstained. Um, yeah. so, so, you know, A, that kind of sets a precedent where clearly the right of the party loves making a lot of noise um, and then doesn't do much. There's also the fact that I think a number of more uh, moderate Tory MPs abstained last time uh, because, you know, from the other side because they were not very convinced by the bill they may now vote for it because obviously they do not want to hand a victory to the Tory right so that's a big thing as well um and then I don't know so there's also the thing which I I found sort of both funny and frustrating where uh, so apparently centrist Tory MPs have been doing this thing where they've uh, laid out a number of amendments to the bill so obviously again trying to water it down a bit um but then crucially one of them uh briefed the press to say but look You'll never guess. Turns out, we don't mean those amendments because we know they're not going to pass. We're just trying to make it look so SUNAC is being even-handed by, you know, saying no to amendments on both sides. And it's like... Dies. don't tell Do you know them. That, you know, it's just like <laughs> the point of a secret plan is that it remains secret. And no, but that, that weirdly, and again, I have no you know, kind of thing in this the game. The first
0: but rule of amendments club. <laughs> I know is you don't talk about amendments club. Um,
1: but yes, yeah, so as a long story short, it should be fine. I feel like you know, if I were Number Ten, I think if you look at a lot of the briefing from both Number Ten and the kind of non-insane right-wing uh, wing of the Tory Party, they seem quite relaxed. But you know, maybe they'll be proved wrong.
0: And and of course you. you The the opposition would never support the amendments that seek to make the legislation even more cruel or even more in breach of international law. Mm. And then the ones seeking to water Mm. it down don't have enough support. So. Are we about to see a bill get through Parliament, even though a majority in the Commons actually hate it? It's just that they hate it for different reasons and cannot find
1: well, this a reason
0: to unify behind us.
1: All this time, this is all Theresa May wanted, <laughs> 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 and she failed.
0: <laughs> that so, yeah. is so true. Yeah, that Rishi Sunak is, so is about
1: to live everyone's dream. But no, but slightly more seriously, is actually it was quite interesting. So I did, for my sins, watch some of the debates um, in back in December. And it was the argument from the Tory centre was very much saying, listen, actually, most of us don't love that bill, again, for lots of different reasons. But maybe the fact that we all think it's about six out of 10 is a sign that we should pass it. Um, So so that's been their argument for some time. Um, Um,
0: So, Matt, does that mean we are once again looking to the Lords? We're taking a break from (laughs) criticising the way Lords are appointed and looking to them for help to stop this nonsense. And are they likely to?
3: I think quite possibly they are. There was a quote from Lord Kirkhope, former Immigration Minister, um, in the eye that the Lords would try to water down the bill. Uh, Lord Alf Dubbs has said that's also probably going to happen, that they'll try and force changes on constitutional issues like the role of the courts, uh, especially if any of the amendments have been brought up. And it sounds like, from what you're both saying, that that's not going to happen. So maybe that that would mean the Lords would look more favourably at it, but I suspect not, because in the end... There's nothing that the government can do. They don't have a majority. They can't force it through with the Parliament Act. They haven't got time they to do They haven't got that. the
0: time. They need
3: three sessions, don't they? Yeah, and so, in the end, the Lords has the power to, if not stop it forever, certainly stop it before the end of this Parliament, and that's all they need to do.
0: Of course, it was not in their manifesto, which is usually quite a big... Yeah,
3: um, moral justification in the Lords. Certainly, there was no mention of Rwanda and, and all that sort of stuff in the Tory manifesto of twenty nineteen. Mention of being prime minister, for that matter. Exactly, mm-hmm. um, Mary. On that, um,
0: there was an eye catching poll on the front page of Monday's Telegraph. What were the findings?
1: Uh, Well, you will be shocked to hear that. (laughs) Hold on to your hats, everyone. Uh, You will not quite believe this, but apparently the Conservative Party is on course for the worst electoral defeat since 1997. (gasps) Um, Which, again, is is this slightly odd thing where I think everyone's kind of known that was coming for quite a long time, Uh, but the Tory press has kind of been living in la-la land for some time now, so that was quite interesting. But... More seriously, so the YouGov survey of uh, 14,000 people forecasts that... A big the, sample.
0: Sorry? big sample. It is a big
1: sample. Yep. And yeah, and according to them, the Tories would retain only 169 seats, which is not many seats. Uh, and Starmer would have a 120-seat majority, uh, so having in total 385 Labour MPs. So it is, I will say, uh, as, as a political expert, not good news for the Tories.
0: Mm. Um, how embarrassing is it that YouGov... Had to issue a note <laughs> clarifying which of the conclusions drawn by Frost and the Telegraph genuinely flowed from the data and which were invented.
1: It was so weird. So, I mean, for, for people who've not kind of seen, so the context is so the Telegraph kind of took that data, but then they went arguably too far by going, "Oh, well, we've taken." All the you know, like all the data on like the people saying they would vote reform. And we've decided that like, we at the Telegraph have decided that if reform were not to stand, every single one of those votes would go to the Conservative yeah. Party. Which is mad. Like which is such a mad and then like, you know, and then they're like and here are the conclusions we have drawn from the conclusions yeah. we drew. <laughs> and yet, which is why Yigov had to go, um guys? <laughs> What? Not what we said. <laughs> that is not.
0: Yeah. Hi everyone. <laughs> not what we said. <laughs> um, and and Frost had commissioned the poll, or as he his, what, it, as he says in his opinion piece, he helped shape and analyse it. <laughs>
1: but yeah, so no, Looking a bit closer, so every single red wall seat that was won from Labour by Boris Johnson in 2019 would go back to the Labour Party, go back to someone else. Right, right. So there would no longer be any red wall 2019. Uh, there would hardly be Which a
0: blue wall from from it's, those. Yeah, spots. and I mean,
1: what and what a loss because I feel like you know some of the greatest intellectuals <laughs> of our generation were elected in the red wall in 2019 by the Tories. Is it isn't it fair um, to
3: say that the red wall would be rebuilt? So there would now there would now yes. be a red wall. Oh, that's it's, true. It's yes, funny because no, no, we always we'll talk about the red wall going but it's the opposite isn't it like yeah, repainting the red it War, well repainting it red yes. yes it's gone yes. it's coming back to being red um, yes that's true very very good point um,
1: but it would also i think be really big for the parliamentary conservative party because you would have big beasts like so jeremy hunt penny mordant ids grand chaps lee anderson and john redwood would lose their seats and many many others so i think it would be very odd as well to see a conservative party that would not look anything like um you know yeah. the conservative party we've had for a decade and a half now
0: all of Kemi Badenoch's rivals, mm. I note, <laughs> um, who did uh, brief to the Times. Mm. I noticed uh, over the weekend that she's one of the ones in the cabinet who thinks the Rwanda bill should go much further than mm. it does. It should be much stricter. Oh, no, I enjoy
1: says so she. She it apparently is. said that very privately, which is very why ended up on the front page of the Times. Yes, <laughs> she
0: did. Mm. She said it very privately to a Times journalist. Um, on the record. um seth do we know anything about this new group that commissioned um the the poll the conservative britain alliance well,
2: until Sunday night, no one had ever heard of them. But they are apparently a group of conservative donors. Um, now, that could be anyone. It could be a millionaire or it could be a billionaire. But,
3: um, <laughs> but or two billionaires. Uh,
2: but what we know about the sort of pool of Tory donors that there are is that historically, say a decade ago, there were about 200 of them who were bankrolling the Conservative Party. But half of those people have left because actually they were sort of remain remaining inclined people who mm. had trading links with Europe and uh, had very good reasons to leave. But since then, actually, the Tories have done Really well in attracting new donors in the earlier half of this parliament. They've actually had about 650 individuals who've donated serious sums of yeah. money to them. So it could be any one of a number of people. My guess might actually be that they're not that rich and that there aren't that many of them. And the reason I say is that you mentioned it's a it's a big sample at 14,000 for a poll, which is absolutely true. But for this sort of MRP people, I mean, I've seen bigger. I've seen 30,000 or 40,000 as a. Mm. But the, the whole point about an MRP is that you want your subsamples to be large enough to be statistically. Significant significant so that you can draw. And um, my guess is that they may have picked fourteen thousands because they were saying, what's the cheapest <laughs> size that we can get that is still statistically significant, mm-hmm. but we, you know, shades of Joseph, F. Kenne- uh, Joseph Kennedy saying um, to his son, I'm not going to pay for a landslide. Likewise, <laughs> I'm not going to pay for a
0: super pole. I mean, looking at the conclusions they've drawn from the results i don't know why they bothered yeah, it quite. wouldn't have made a difference if the sample was 50 people exactly <laughs> or one person david frost yes <laughs> <laughs> um which which does seem to be um what it is uh, matt sunak is still 18 points behind labor on aggregate that sort of deficit can only turn around by taking big risks and big issues. So should he be quite grateful for difficult weeks like this one? I mean that, I mean that quite sincerely. Like yeah. he doesn't particularly want easy weeks because there is literally no chance to move the dial. It's sounding a
3: bit like DeSantis, though, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. I, I
0: could lit, I literally <laughs> realise
3: that as I was saying it. If you punch me a few more times, maybe his hand will break. And then then I've got him. Then I'll, I'll headbutt his hand with my face. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of the Tories running as underdogs or as using this as an opportunity to do something bold and um, exciting just feels like they kind of are doing that by doing these... Particularly the Rwanda plan is this very bold and exciting to their to part of their base, but it's not really working. And I, I don't know. It just feels like at the moment Labour are quite happy to let them keep just smashing themselves. Yeah. And uh, and I think I think I don't think voters really care if he wins a vote against his own party. I think we you know political nerds care about that, but I think voters care if he does something. And I think in the end the Rwanda scheme feels like it's probably not actually going to happen even mm. if he can even if he wins this or even manages to somehow get it through the lords it's still there's still going to be loads of problems with it and so i think i don't think that's a big i just don't think it's a big winning um platform to say i've just about sort of got this thing through and it's nearly happened and i've got four asylum seekers on a plane it just, i don't know it just doesn't feel like a big enough a big enough change the the analysis i
0: saw suggests that because of his makeup as a prime minister, because of his strengths and weaknesses, weaknesses. basically Sunak wants to fight the election in the economy. He's uncomfortable Mm. fighting it on um, culture war issues um, because it's not his natural home, as it were. But on the economy, um, the judgment from his opponents is that the Tories can never win. I mean, is there... A sort of policy mat that has the capacity to satisfy both the majority in the commons and get through the laws on immigration, for instance, because I've been genuinely racking my brain to think of mm. something that would please all those different constituents groups groups and it feels like we are actually in Theresa May territory. Mm. I was going to say, it feels we're like we're, the, back. We're, we're back in the Brexit I was just going to say on,
1: yeah. war with France. <laughs> you know, that would please everyone. We, we have had a I'm mid... not
0: sure that would please everyone.
1: <laughs> I think we could get a majority of voters <laughs> in favor uh, of war with France. Okay. We have had a
2: major economic indicator come out in the last few weeks, which is that life expectancy in the UK has dropped to 2010 level. So I think vote Tory and live shorter lives is the pitch.
0: Yes. And he keeps <laughs> saying, Do you want to go back to square one <laughs> with Starmer? It's like, Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Square one would be square one would be quite nice yeah, at two, three, and four, and four is yeah. like yeah. fire and snakes. Matt he's also sticking with a slogan. Um I heard it in the pool clip today. Stick with change. <laughs> ah. So
2: that's the only
1: noise
0: I can make. I love that sound. That is the, you know, that is the sort of falling from a balcony. Yeah, that was
1: my soul exiting sound. my body.
0: <laughs> it is, it has a name for it. I can't remember it, you know, when people die in films, they oh, yeah, put the... that. Ah. <laughs> um, what, what do you think of that? Uh, I mean... Can he be both the
3: continuity and the change candidate? I mean, it's, it's, it's literally a slogan from Veep, isn't it? <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. That, famously, that's the, the slogan they picked because they thought it was the most vacuous slogan they could think of. Was continuity with change? Yeah. And then famously, Mal- Malcolm Turnbull in Australia literally used that slogan for his um, re-election campaign because it's one of those slogans. It sounds sort of superficially kind of nice-ish, but the problem is you can't. It's, it's pulling in two directions, literally. If you like continuity, you don't want change. If you like change, you don't want continuity. It's like someone saying, you know, we're moving ahead while staying still. We're stepping forwards confidently with caution. <laughs> we're hunkering down in a hurry. The, the, you know, it just all these kind of words which sound good in the moment. And then as soon as you look at them for a second, you go, well, that's no, that doesn't make sense. And it, it, feels, like, it, feels, it feels like they're trying to sort of be nuanced. Mm. He's, he's trying to give off this almost air of sophistication of nuance but <laughs> it doesn't work because as soon as you look at it for a second his MPs are in the background punching the, each other in the face on, about the Rwanda scheme which and no is one, not sophisticated <laughs> is it and no one agrees with anybody so he, he can't give that he can't genuinely be someone who's offering continuity with change because because his his party aren't with him on that
0: it's literally chaos yeah and no change um Seth The poll, Marie mentioned, it projects a significant impact by Reform UK, up to 96 seats, apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, But the assumption is that, but for Reform, every single one of those voters would vote Tory, Yep. it jumped out at me this morning as a not incredibly safe one, just <laughs> in a very quick reading of the the poll. Um, and it is one of the things YouGov have had to correct. They came out and said, mm, not so much. Mm-hmm. We think it'll be about a third. Yep. Like th- looking at that 10% and saying 10% will come to us. Mm-hmm. And, and YouGov goes, it'll be more like three and a half. And um, that makes quite a difference. So what is the agenda here? What is the Telegraph and Frost trying to do, actually? Because this is this seems to me like a willful misrepresentation of the data, right? Yeah, uh, well, a, a
2: willful commissioning of the data that suits hmm. an agenda. And the agenda here is we quite like the Reform Party pitch to voters, mm-hmm. we think the Conservative Party's pitch should be closer to that and we want to show that they need those voters and to maximise that as, as much as possible. Um, and the problem is the evidence doesn't really bear that out. I mean, you know, 31% I believe is the exact figure for um, reform voters who are likely to sort of Default to the Tories as their second best option. I think after that, there are nearly as many who would just not vote. And um, yes, there are quite a few who'd vote for other parties um, because their motivation yeah. might be to punish the Tories. Well, and, and in that case, their vote would go to we, someone else. We live a two-party system, and so it usually takes some quite odd reasons to want to vote for a third party, or mm. at least some quite determined reasons.
3: Yeah. it's like when in in by-elections where where they have those leaflets that come out and say only we can win because if you count up every single other vote that isn't for that party Mm. only us and it never works it never Mm. makes sense you wouldn't switch from green to labor necessarily unless you were absolutely desperate to get out and, and where
2: Frost has a point is saying that people are not terribly enthused by the conservative offer at the moment. They need something. Hmm. The problem is that there's no evidence at all that what he's offering yeah. will enthuse
0: <laughs> anyone beyond a few old balls like Lord Frost. Yes, mm-hmm. Now, I think the, the, the assumption that a party that has gone Theresa May, Pretty Patel, Suella Braverman on this issue is somehow not tacking enough to the right... Is quite a big one. Um, I also really loved uh, uh, his response to this poll in the pool clip, mm. which is the most, like, what is the most hackneyed response that you can imagine a politician giving I haven't seen this, to but- someone saying, um, there's this
3: awful poll for you? Is it? The only poll that counts is the poll election. <laughs> yes, on that is elections. exactly <laughs> right. Thank you. Ding, ding, that
0: ding. is exactly right. The only poll that matters <laughs> is the one on general election, which is a weird argument for Sunak to make, right, considering he hasn't faced an election <laughs> leading the party, because their response will be, OK, then, let's have one of those.
1: It's. I also enjoyed that. But actually, you know, there's been lots and lots of polls recently, and it's like... Yes, what, what did they all say? <laughs> <laughs> just us out that quickly.
0: Um. Um, Marie, there is serious talk uh, <laughs> of another leadership challenge. <laughs> say it ain't so.
1: No, it ain't so. I, I don't know. I, I completely refuse to entertain this and, and I, I've read the pieces about it. But, but you know, the only thing that could happen will is, they... is let's say some headbangers, you know, send in the letters. Graham yeah. Brady, you know, puts on his big clown shoes, his big nose and then, you know, sort of, like steps <laughs> is gingerly Is still,
0: still in charge? He is.
1: He is. No, again, which I will also remind uh, listeners of one of my favourite things, which is that, uh, Joni, I cannot remember which one now, but one of the leadership contests and not the last one, I think like two ones ago anyway, he resigned as chair of the twenty two committee because he wanted to run for leader mm. or or at the very least get a cabinet <laughs> position and then just did not. And then very quietly just became <laughs> yeah. twenty two leader again let's is
0: no longer in charge of the 19th. no one
1: ever mentioned it again. Oh, he was brilliant. I am leaving to be a star. I have come back.
0: <laughs> oh, Graham. Um, but yeah, He did I know. a ginger spice, didn't he? He
1: did. Um, but anyway, uh, I, yeah, because you know, let, let's say when enough headbangers send in the letters to Sir Graham Brady, there's a um, there's a vote of no confidence. Rishi Sunak will win it. That I would put every penny in my savings on Rishi Sunak winning a no confidence vote, because again, there are not that many people who think, you know, any other leader could do better. And then he's safe until the election. End of the story.
0: <laughs> so I will take that bet, provided your savings are, as I predict they are, around the £200 mark. <laughs> Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Who's the bell of the ball and who's the end of the bell? Reminder, keep your pitches shortish. Shall we start with Marie? Sure.
1: Uh, So my heroes, plural, are the Taiwanese voters who voted for Lai Ching-te to be their next president. So bringing in a certain for the Democratic Progressive Party, Mm -hmm. who are the kind of, you know, want Taiwan to be its own country and very much kind of like reject uh, China's attempted influence, etc. And I think it can't really be an easy situation to be in Taiwan at the moment and kind of seeing Beijing looming over Mm. and trying to get closer and closer. So, you know, I feel like well done them for really kind of voting and making this kind of statement of intent. Mm. Um, And then, so my villain is going to sound quite normy, I think, but sometimes you do just have to like go through the basics. I am like, my villains are every single person who's voting for Trump in the primaries. I just cannot believe people are doing this again. But you know, one of those, and again, you know, we've kind of accepted it now as entirely that it's a given Trump is just going to go in. But I I do just want to stop to go, why? (laughs) Just Why?
0: It's a compelling pitch. <laughs> How about you, Seth?
2: My hero is the community notes feature on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> which has Tories so rattled that the um, the group Conservative Post, which at least is transparent on its funding, it's funded by Lord Cruddus, um, they, they released a series of deranged memes about how Labour are ganging up on us through the community notes feature and we appeal personally to Elon Musk to intervene to yeah. stop this sort of thing. Because you have things like Rishi Sunak getting, I think, three posts in six days or getting struck with notes
0: saying no it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. But in it- was true right my, so my, like, no i mean the correction yeah. was correct. Uh, totally. totally. So,
2: when you have an election picture just based on outright lies, don't be surprised if there's yeah. a platform to say, nope, um, my villain is Peter Bone. And uh, not only has he managed to sort of browbeat the uh, the local Tories in his constituency in Wellingborough to select his girlfriend as the candidate, because he did threaten to stand as an independent and split the Tory vote, if, if they didn't, apparently. But um, having obviously been thrown out of the conservative Conservative party and having nothing to do with the conservative party anymore these days he was then spotted out canvassing for the tories in the by-election
3: how about you Matt? <laughs> i just want to say on seth's one the community notes thing that i really love is that most of the adverts i now see on twitter are also community noted <laughs> saying <laughs> this yes. is yeah. not a good product <laughs> this is a lie this is a scam and i just love that it's sort of self-policing <laughs> scam on twitter um, anyway that's well, some look some credit to musk they're a good feature. He's selling uh, adverts and then wrong. immediately saying they they're not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my uh, my heroes are um, the two female Iranian journalists who have just been released um, on bail after being in jail for more than a year for covering the death of um, Masa um, uh, Amini, which triggered the nationwide protests, yeah. we all remember. Uh, and um, they're called Nilafar Hamedi and uh, Elihei uh, Mohamedi. And I think it just I just wanted to mention them because... Obviously, they were incredibly brave and journalists in general are under attack across the world in all sorts mm-hmm. of different places at the moment. We're all very aware. And obviously, the attention of the world has kind of generally moved away from uh, the Iranian protests for obvious and tragic reasons. But it's good to be reminded of the bravery of those, those women in particular mm-hmm. who started, the, you know, in some ways, sort of sparked the protests. My villains are Rochdale Borough Wide Housing. Uh, Rochdale, not having a great time in the news at the moment. The grooming gangs report came out this week, very disturbing, lots of villains in that. But um, this housing company, they're a landlord, um, responsible for lots of housing, uh, and basically just it's loads of it. it's got mould, it's horrific, uh, and they're specifically my villains this week because one of their um, tenants was told, allegedly, that they <laughs> they complained about mould in their flats and they were told that they breathed too much at night. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Marie
0: just did a proper, <laughs> she did a proper like Scooby Doo <laughs> facial <fashion laughs> expression to those not watching and just listening. She did like a whoa.
3: <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're pretty horrible oh and they've been God. responsible for mold in all. They, they were the landlords who were responsible for that horrible, tragic case where uh, the two year old. A uh, boy died from exposure to mould. Um, they've said they're working to carry out repairs, but the repairs are going very slowly. Um, so they need to kick up the bum.
0: Oh gosh, it's very difficult to choose today because they are genuinely very—they are all genuine villains and all genuine um, heroes. Um, but I have to go with a double for Marie, actually, Ooh, thank uh, you. and I'll—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll show my workings. That's because I can't resist. The sort of Brechtian statement (laughs) that both the heroes and villains this week are voters. (laughs) They get it right as often (laughs) as they get it very, very wrong. (laughs) And you need to be better at it. Can we quote Dick Tuck at this point? Go on.
2: Democrat congressman who was unsuccessful in his re-election campaign. The people have spoken the bastards (laughs) (laughs) yes
0: Now, Private Eye has been covering the sub-postmaster scandal for years, and the ITV dramatisation has finally brought it into the mainstream. Private Eye editor Ian Hislop's demolition of former Tory party chair Jake Berry and Peston went viral last week. He's previously taken on Priti Patel over her support for the death penalty and Robert Jenrick on the Rwanda scheme. Modern politics is full of rancorous disagreement, and there are plenty of arguments worth having. But what constitutes winning Does the humiliation of our opponent change the minds of those watching, or is it actually counterproductive? Marie, to contradict ourselves straight away, you think most arguing is entirely pointless.
1: Oh, absolutely. I hate arguing. Well, so first of all, I will quote a tweet. Uh, which is, I don't understand how lawyers can argue without crying <laughs> because that's very much how I feel about arguing. If I care about something, I will probably end up crying. Um, but no, so I think... <laughs> I, th- I don't know. It's a weird physical response. Um, but anyway, no, so I think... I kind we'll, of
0: want to see that Richard Curtis film now of <laughs> you as a successful barrister. It's just... <laughs> and
1: I occasionally get nosebleeds as well if I get really angry. So it's a like really weird like liquids just want to pour out of me when I'm getting angry. Um, but I've I'm yet to piss myself, but yeah. <laughs> um, but no, so I think that my, my more serious point is that I think TV and radio debates, uh, especially, just do not matter at all because no, I, I don't believe anyone's mind has ever got changed by a kind of you know four and a half minutes like panel of three people dis- disagreeing on something. And I, I did them, you know, when I started out in journalism, especially in politics. I got invited to do lots of telly and lots of radio and kind of oh well, you know. You've got this view. We've but someone else has got the opposing view, and you're you're going to you know like have it out. And every single time, I think I've en- I ended up leaving, going, I you know I didn't learn anything. I don't believe I convinced anyone. I don't believe the other person convinced anyone. I don't believe anyone left this better informed. So I think that it is a format that is very cheap, and there's always going to be people who want you know the attention essentially. Mm. So I think yeah, especially that the media will always feature a lot of pointless arguments. And um, but 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 I do think that's bad because again, I think. The media, especially,'s role should be to inform people and to make them understand quite tough issues. And that's not going to happen. Okay. So and this rounds of. You're right. No, you're, you know, you're, wrong, you're wrong.
0: All right. So there's some nuance in mm. that you reject arguments the way they are shaped at the moment, especially in the media. Yeah. But you don't sort of reject dialectic.
1: But well, no, again, no. I can't do it because I cry. Um, but yeah, no, I don't hate all arguments. Um,
0: yeah. um, in a private argument, your sole target is the person who disagrees. Mm. In a public argument, you have a wider audience. Mm. So are the parameters for winning different between private? public arguments, do
1: you think? Well, yes. And I think, uh, God, I wrote about that a few years ago now uh, in an article that was widely ignored uh, by the internet. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, um, Amazingly, just because it was in an academic journal aimed at the centre-left, it didn't go (laughs) massively viral. Um, But my point is that actually part of the reason why the right kind of kept winning at online debate was that the right, exactly as you kind of said, understood that, especially Twitter debates, you know, like your job there is not to convince the person in front of you, but to convince the audience. So I think in lots of debates you end up, and annoyingly it is mostly people on the left who will resort to kind of like insults or be like really, really abrasive and call people bad, beat person, et cetera. Um, and they didn't quite get that again to anyone watching. That's going to be hugely off-putting, whereas I think right-wing people or centre-right or whatever are more likely to be quite good at the whole, like, I'm going to be very courteous and say, oh, well, you know, of course, I respect your view, but blah, 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 which is very annoying. But also, again, if you're watching that, and I think the trans debate was a big one on that as well. If you're watching that from the outside, you are much more likely to be convinced by the kind of like polite, civilised, like softly spoken person. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so I do think, mm. you know, a debate kind of entirely depends on whether you just have a... Yeah having it in a locked room with someone or in front of an audience. And I think especially the left fails to understand that quite often.
0: Seth, is having an argument, even if one knows they won't win, important for putting their dissent on record, as it were? I I think it's more
2: important because politics is never something that's resolved one day. Mm. It's an ongoing process. It'll keep going after we've all died. And so actually setting down where we went right, where we went wrong, what our reasons are, somebody's gonna pick up the torch and you know take something like Brexit, take something like EU and uh, EDEC membership from the very outset. There were people who dissented, who laid down for future generations an argument that was taken up. So there are reasons why Going for posterity isn't just vanity, it's actually quite a reasonable sort of public policy decision. Um, but you can also go down a bit of a blind alleyway that way. I mean, I remember the, uh, the 2017 reaction from the Corbyn camp of, well, we won the argument. <laughs> and people yes. confusing winning the argument in their terms with the actual result. I think they're, they're two very different things.
0: Yes, I think winning the argument in an election has a really definite, measurable Outcome, right? If you win the argument, you will have won the election. Mm. Um, I mean, but Corbyn is an interesting example because he's someone whose reputation has been built over many years of sort of putting down his dissent on record, even when he knows he's got zero chance of convincing, like the Mm. House of Commons. But through that, he has built a certain reputation as a sort of pacifist, you know, you know that, that, is a, that doesn't seem opportunistic. It doesn't seem to sway with the, with the weather, as it were. It, it, he does build a case for this being his conviction yeah, throughout you know, his on, career. On the sort of
2: soft right, you could argue Winston Churchill, on the hard right, Enoch Powell, they all, mm. irrespective of your positions, that is a viable strategy if you want to play the principal card.
0: Yeah. In most democracies, the parliamentary chamber is in a semicircle. I'm obsessed by this, I've discussed it I think with Marie Mm -hmm. before. Um, Even in the US, even in devolved administrations in the UK, but Westminster, MPs shout at each other from opposite sides, which are quite far away from each other, like you literally have to shout. To what extent do you think our political culture stems from that adversarial system?
2: Um, I think it doesn't help. I mean, I have a lot of time for the Churchill argument that we build our buildings and after that our buildings mould us. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's something about the sort of accident of Parliament as it is. The, the only reason they have that bench set up is because when they originally met in the original chapel, uh, they would line up the benches in this church on the side. And that is literally the only reason. Right, they right. This is how we're going to do this. What I would say is that in the U.S., where they do have that precise um, horseshoe horse system, shoot, yeah. that doesn't stop them from extreme partisanship. I mean, I think you're right. It's, it's a factor. But um, in the U.S., they've at least got the concept of reaching out beyond the aisle. It's literally grounded in the aisle right down the middle that the point. Yeah, yeah. trying to bridge that divide in some sort of way. So there's a concept, but that doesn't mean that the political culture works any more friendly either.
0: Mm. Marie, what role does social media play here? Talk TV, GB News, they get poor live ratings, but clips of the Barneys that go on are all over Twitter and YouTube, and that's what they're really there to produce. Mm. Um, So, what do you think, has social media amplified this dysfunction that you were describing before, Mm -hmm. these... Show arguments that really, where you're not trying to convince anyone, you're just trying to shout your point the loudest.
1: Mm. Oh no, absolutely, and I do think it ends up creating a kind of ecosystem that's completely closed up. So you'll do, let's say, I don't know, you've tweeted about an issue in a way that was very strident and you know, kind of very like. Is there any other way? No, exactly. (laughs) So then, let's say you get invited onto GB News or Talk TV to talk about it, and you know, have a big argument about this, which again, then you know, three people watch that at home, two of them are dead, Um, (laughs) then. Gets clipped, it gets put on social media, it goes viral because oh, people actually really quite like watching arguments for some reason I can't quite get. And then from that, other people will go, oh, well, this person clearly likes arguing. We should book them, and so be that the BBC or Sky, etc., or we should give them a column. And 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 then so I think this never ends. So there's there's definitely a career path, I think, for people willing to argue about anything. And what I will say as well, and um, so I've not done any of that kind of teddy for quite a long time, so I do get to sit on my beautiful high horse. Hmm. Um, but I used to get um, texts from a TV channel that I will not name saying, oh, hi, Marie. To be clear, that was the entire message. They would not say what they wanted me to talk about or argue about because they, they just clearly assumed because clearly <laughs> enough people will just say, yes, I would love to go on TV at 3 p.m. because I'm free. And it was always like... To, you talk about what? Like just, what? <laughs> Please narrow it down. Um, yes. But yeah, so again, so clearly I think it, it, it does create a kind of certain type of media star, I suppose.
0: Yeah. I can also attest to the fact that uh, a channel contacted me once to talk about a particular issue. Mm. And, and I said to them that I really don't know very much about this. Mm. And you'd be better off with and I suggested two or three other people and they were just Shocked. (laughs) Absolutely shocked (laughs) that I was not. Anyway, um, do do you think the fact that we keep having arguments online, though, fly in the face of the received wisdom of the last decade, maybe, Mm. that we would all form these airtight echo chambers where Mm. we would never see things we disagreed with, because plainly, Mm. we still see plenty of things we disagree with because we keep having massive arguments online.
1: Mm. Well, Alex, I suggest you buy Escape, How a Generation Shaped, (laughs) Destroyed and Survived (laughs) the Internet by Marie Comte, uh, because I do have a chapter entirely on that. So I think as I completely disagree with that thesis saying that, you know, the internet just created lots of, bubbles, etc., and eco-chambers, I think the exact opposite has happened is that we've all been squished in the same spaces So we're all spending, and especially, you know, in the kind of era of like big Facebook and Twitter, etc. everyone you've ever met or may meet or follow or have seen on TV once, et cetera, mm. like, we're all sharing the same space. We're all sitting in the same living room. And so, of course, we end up arguing about everything all the time. Like we were not meant, I think the human brain is not meant you know, for, to to be kind of around this many different people all the time. Um, but, but also, so there was a really interesting study in the, um was it, I wrote about it for the New Scientist, I think, uh, which showed that actually, um, so what they did, they took a lot of Republicans or lots of Democrats and added to their feeds. Um, so for the Republicans, more Democrat content and vice versa for a few weeks or a few months. And then realized that actually both cams had become more polarized by yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. seeing more content they disagreed with. Yeah, um, we saw so, that yeah. in
0: some research mm-hmm. that we did. That, that actually contact with each other ended up mm. making them more polarized, but maybe that's because we're shit at it. Hmm. Um, you mm. know maybe because it's quite new. you know yeah. we've never been in this situation where the whole tribe can communicate with each other oh, yeah. at the same time.
1: Alex, do you know what you should do? What you should buy escape. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This is, <laughs> this is not going to become some long infomercial,
3: Leconte.
1: No, but I do just come
3: straight. Is it not about the fact that we're just all on broadcast all the time? That that's the problem with social media. That it is basically we we. It, it's because the worst arguments or the worst way to have a conversation is to be constantly thinking about what you're saying and not listening to what the other person's saying. And I think that social media is the absolute epitome of that. Well, so that, we can't really mm.
1: conceptualise, I think, the indiv- uh, the invisible audience of mm. online, and I think that breaks our brains. Totally,
2: okay. yeah. But all this comes down to the values modes idea of the fact that we talk in languages that are music to the ears of those who share our values, but actually it's really repulsive to somebody who believes in the utter opposite, yeah. and we don't
3: realise how that comes across in different com- communities. Completely, yeah. and, 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 and I, I think, think it's also about the fact that I think Marie's absolutely right, that if when you're looking at someone through a screen, uh, like literally on if you're just seeing their um, you know, avatar, you can't see them as a human being. Whereas if, if you put two human beings in a room, it's extremely hard unless they are very trained sort of like activists. It's quite hard, I think, to get two people to properly argue mm-hmm. about something. Because they will immediately want to try and find some sort of accommodation. They'll immediately people will go. Well, I, I think this. Do you think that? Oh, I'm not quite sure about. It. Yeah, and then th- w- they will find a way of, of backing down slightly and then smoothing each other's corners mm. off. That's just how human societies are built, I think. Mm. And I think, and we find a situation where we as just a don't... Greek
0: person, I would have to disagree. Well, <laughs> I think that's maybe how <laughs> your particular society
3: is built. It ain't mine. But the point um, is, even even if you're even if you are arguing like strongly with somebody, and you're not you're not Trying to kill them. You're not, you know, you're not trying to kind of. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I, I get it. I wanted to ask you, Matt, because of your day job, as it were, what is the role of humor in this, especially satire? Is taking over the argument with which you disagree and exaggerating it to extremes actually a more elegant way of
3: getting people to realize the, the ridiculousness of the premise? I think so, yeah. I think humour is very disarming. I think if you get someone to laugh at something, it's hard to be as angry about it. Mm -hmm. I think um, you can get people to look at things differently, think about their own point of view. If you can make them laugh at themselves or laugh at the people that they look up to, I think that can be quite powerful. I don't know if satire really changes anything um, for more on that. Um, see my tour show tickets still available uh, but it can it I can I guess you're allowed after uh, that, exactly. I thought I've after seen. that Marie orgy <laughs> <two> <laughs> uh, but, um, but I think it can I mean I think satire can draw attention to things uh, it can draw attention to subjects that maybe you weren't as aware of and then I think people see um yeah see something funny about something and then they you know want to find out a bit more about it and that can that can really help but the other thing satire is I think these days is like everything. It has become quite polarised. So there are people on the left who are very satirical about the Tories and people on the right who are very satirical about the woke. Who well, are not very funny, <laughs> yeah. I was going to well, say. Uh, <laughs> and unfortunately... and, and you end up, not... Well, you end up in a situation... Oh, it's, it's interesting. I went on a podcast the other day with someone who's a bit more... Slightly more sort of centre-right leaning, really. And his audience and my audience are probably quite different. It was quite interesting. Some of the reaction was very like... Some people just didn't, didn't like it and other people it was like they were kind of baffled by what I was saying. They didn't understand. They just haven't heard that perspective in a mm, sense, mm, you know. Mm. Um, and maybe I, you know, just didn't make sense to them and I, they wouldn't make sense to me. But I think there has to be some crossover. Otherwise, yeah, we end up just in these kind of, these these echo chambers in a in a very bad way.
0: Yeah, okay, for fairness, uh, uh, Seth's book is (laughs) Behind Closed Doors. And Um, available on audiobook, in very soothing terms, (laughs) read from the author. (laughs) Okay, so can I ask the whole panel one final question on this? Have you ever had an argument where you think you won in a meaningful way, where you think you actually did change someone's mind, or have you ever witnessed one where you thought that was that actually changed things.
1: Um, Can I do my trademark response of like one silly thing and then one serious thing?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Sorry, I thought you were going to promote your book again, which is is your trademark Um, response.
1: But no, so I think the argument I was proudest uh, of winning, I think generally in in my entire life, was playing Trivial Pursuit some years ago with friends and losing quite badly. And there's a point which nearly everyone at first thought I should not get, but I convinced them because I was asked, uh, what's a bird that can swim but not fly? And I stood up and I went, me! (laughs) Um,
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: um, and to this day, I'm still really proud of that. But no, the more serious one is that I, I don't actually really have an example, but I think back at either romantic relationships or friendships. And I, think, uh, and I think, you know, I've definitely had my mind changed and I've changed someone's mind just by having genuine, sincere arguments with people I cared about, who cared about me, and we really respected each other. And I think that's kind of the point I wanted to make about arguing in general, which is that I think... It's only really relevant if you really truly respect the other person and vice versa and then that, that's how you of, end up, yeah, changing minds and, hearts yeah. and minds
0: yeah, yeah um what is the bird that consumed by- Oh
1: I can't even remember <laughs> now, man because it was so, me, <laughs> just that was really good.
0: How about you Seth? I'm deliberately going
2: to dodge and query the question because I actually think the whole of life is a persuading process. And, you know, also I'm used to losing things, including hmm. arguments. Um,
3: but generally. Well, you lost this segment. <laughs> How about you, Matt? <laughs> um, I'm going to jump on that and say, I... I, Queering my question. (laughs) I I think um, a bit like the others, I'm not someone who's particularly argumentative in real life apart from with people that I know and trust and respect and whatever, but that's why it's great being a comedian, because I can have an argument, which I've definitely lost, then rewrite it, and then tell it on stage, (laughs) (laughs) No, I want, Uh, and that's one of my favourite things about it. Maybe
0: that's the secret to it, getting getting do-overs. Mm. Basically, It's the spirit of the de the, so,
3: l'escalier, they say, you know, the spirit of the staircase. Mm. You think of the thing you should have said, and then next time you say it first.
0: Yeah. A couple of times, it, this magical thing has happened where I actually said the thing mm. that, mm. you know, would occur to me normally two hours later. And mm. I'd be like, oh, why didn't yeah. I say that? And it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, mm. you know, it cut the other person down. Mm. So horribly that it made me feel really bad about myself. So don't, Aww. don't overestimate. You know, was that when you coming said, up with the arguments? <laughs> coming up with a perfect bitchy response, basically, is not what is cracked but, up to me. When it occasionally happens, it, if you, unless you are like mm. your insides are like Suela Braverman, mm. it actually affects you quite negatively because you think, anyway. Let us do escape routes. Let us uh, suggest what cultural caves we have been spelunking
3: into this week to uh, to end the
0: show. Uh, Let's start
3: with Matt. Uh, I've watched a couple of films. I would recommend Um, "Anatomy of a Fall." was very good. French film set in the Alps uh, about woman who's accused of killing her husband because he's fallen out of a window. Uh, It's very interesting, naturalistic, almost documentary style. Very strong performances um, from one of the young, particularly young boy who plays their son. And for me it was quite fascinating it actually links to something you we were talking about earlier it's quite a lot of it's a courtroom drama set in a french court mm-hmm. and it's very different it's uh you know it has elements of the the sort of back and forth uh, of the um the kind of uh the court you know um adversarial court system yeah. we're used to but also quite interesting differences which i found very very um yeah because they tend
0: to have a sort of
3: advocate that acts for the court mm. that gets the information
0: as it were collates it for the court. And
3: it feels and it might just be that the film is making all of this up, but it feel it felt like it was much sort of more um, dynamic as a process that you would they would be able to ask questions of witnesses at all at different times yeah, court, yeah, rather yeah. than just one moment Ooh, of That's interesting. Uh, and also the holdovers as well. That's excellent. Um, Alexander Payne directed and it's a it's a uh, set in the 1970s uh, about um a student and a teacher, a teacher played by Paul Giamatti, who's brilliant. Uh, Who have to hold over at a um, uh, private school in New England uh, over Christmas. And it's sort of, they start off as enemies and. Do you know what? They end up as friends. And it's one of those lovely, sort of bit- slightly bittersweet, poignant films. And I can't believe they didn't release it before Christmas because it's a okay. perfect Christmas film. But I would Very recommend good. that.
0: Marie, I'm going to take a risk and ask uh, what <laughs> what book are you enjoying <laughs> at the moment?
1: No, actually, I'm, re- I'm reading a book which I'm not loving at the moment. Right. But I did go watch a great movie made by one of your countrymen, mm-hmm. uh, Yorgos Lantimos. Yeah. Did I pronounce that horribly? You,
0: no, you pronounced it quite well.
1: Fine, cool. Uh, but no, poor things. Uh, his new movie like starring Emma Stone... Uh, It's very, very weird. So the the beginning of the movie is essentially this mad scientist uh, finds a woman who's thrown herself off a bridge, pregnant, uh, about to give birth. Um, She's very nearly dead, practically dead. The baby's still alive. He drags her back to his uh, lab and then takes out the baby, um, takes the brain from the baby, puts the brain in the woman, and so you kind of, and then raises essentially that child in a grown woman's body. And then you kind of see what happens to her. Like I, di- I kind of didn't want to watch it at first because I thought the premise sounded really grim. Um, but it's actually incredibly funny. Uh, it, it is that sort of weird movie. There's like, a lot of shagging in it, but I would yeah. not really describe this as erotic per se. But yeah, no, incredibly funny. The styling is beautiful. Uh, Emma Stone is like remarkable. I think she's going to win every single award for it. Um, but yeah, you know, really like proper. You know, when you come out to the cinema and you're like, I both felt very entertained, but also mm. like I went to see a proper like capital M movie, uh, which I think quite rarely happens. Pygmalion
0: but with a Yes, massive twist. And, and the
1: aesthetics are very mm. odd as well and kind of slightly unsettling and yeah, and kind of like childlike and colourful. How is, about yeah. you,
0: Seth?
2: Marie beat me to it, I was going really? to just oh. poor things as well. No, it's, okay. it's a fantastic mm. film. Um, I mean, I'd probably describe... Well, that just the, makes
0: it a very, uh, very strong recommendation. The, the
2: feel of it is very much sort of Frankenstein meets The Rake's Progress mm. with, the, mm. yes, this wonderful performance by Emma Stone. Um, the one thing that was difficult for me, and I really, really enjoyed it, I'm very squeamish. And there's a lot of blood and gore. And I okay. I, I nearly I'm... threw up several times in the cinema. <laughs> I mean, that's,
1: was... Oh, my God. I'm, I am sorry to say this on air, but how squeamish can you possibly be? Because I'm quite squeamish and I was fine. Oh. OK,
0: if you're both squeamish, you will both want to ignore my recommendation. Oh, yeah, you always
1: do horror. This oh. week,
0: which is Incident in a Ghostland. It can be found on Amazon Prime. It is hardcore horror. It's, oh, like, it's like a hard watch. Um... But it is genuinely also really smart and twisty mm. in ways you don't expect. And it plays a lot with memory and what we think is real and what actually happened. And that keeps shifting throughout the film. And I always love those Rashomon-like films because memory is a, a slippy thing. And and my more conventional recommendation, mm. um, as you know, I am obsessed with procedural things yeah. so Annika on BBC Player. there are two seasons of it Nicola Walker I could watch anything with Nicola <laughs> Walker. to be honest mm. I just find her immensely watchable whatever she does she delivers every line with just so much humor and pathos mm. and and I'm enjoying it hugely it breaks the fourth wall um she chats to you a lot Mm. It takes a little bit of getting used to, but when you get used to it, it's really very funny, which is not easy for a series Mm. that's about a dead body every week. But it is very funny. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God What Now. Thank you, Marie. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Who is previewing his tour show at venues including Angel Comedy and the Hen and Chickens in Islington at the end of this month. So go to the websites for tickets. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Thursday for our backers and Friday morning for everyone else. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
3: Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andreu with Matt Green, Marie Leconte and Seth Tavot. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and, for the penultimate time, me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin and Kieran Leslie. Our direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmaster's production. <laughs>